I heard a story some years ago about a pastor at a Baptist church. Now, in the Baptist church, they do things a little bit differently than we're accustomed to in the Adventist tradition. Uh, but ba- uh, Baptist pastors come and they compete with one another on Sunday night, and they have uh, pastors preaching one right after the other so they can select the one that they want. One of them was wired up as I am today, and he went to the restroom and they heard everything that was happening there. And as he's leaving the restroom, he's pumping himself up and he says, Go get him, tiger. Well, I don't feel like a tiger this morning, I'm going to admit to you. I feel more like the kitten that's trying to hide from the pit bull. So, as I pray this morning for God's Spirit, know that this is uh, genuine. I'm really needing the presence of God this morning as I speak. So, would you bow your heads together with me as we pray? Father in heaven, as we open your word, let this audience see past the messenger to the message. As we uncover 1 Corinthians 13, 7 to 13, about love. Let us experience that love. Hold us close. Never let us go. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't give out. I'll say it one more time. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't give out. Remember those words. You're going to hear them again. I'm beginning with a story that happened in Seattle in 2006. Uh, Jennifer was expecting twins. Very excited. First children in the family, never had any children before. And they're doing all the things that new parents do, going out and purchasing, you know, the baby seats for the cars and getting the cradle and getting everything ready, probably repainting the room and arranging things. Anticipation of this great and wonderful experience. Everything is going well. And then she writes in her book, Then day 24 hit, and she was rushed into the ER, detached placenta. She was bleeding, hemorrhaging, and the babies were on the way. There was nothing that the doctors could do to stop the babies from coming. Technology, isn't it wonderful? And then she says, I talked with my OBGYN. And I said, what does this mean? The babies are coming in early. And he simply said, it's not good. It's not good. At 16 weeks, before they should have been born, the babies arrived. 
Aden at one pound, 14 ounces. Ethan, one pound, six ounces. We're in serious trouble. She recalls, my world was shattered. Shattered. It's over. I was unable to move. Thank you. (laughs) I was not able to move to the emergency. Her mother is panicked. She was afraid that she was never going to be able to see, that her daughter would never be able to see her boys alive. What a tragedy. First time mother. Never going to see her children alive. She observed translucent skin. Eyes that were sealed shut. There was no cartilage for bones, for the nose, for the ears. There were wires, there were IVs, there were breathing machines. And they were enclosed in an isolate to protect them from infection. I've been to the neonatal intensive care unit with my own grandson. It's a sobering experience. What happened after that? Well, there were surgeries at six months as their hearts were repaired. At eight months, there was another surgery for Ethan. And then he got an infection. They call it the DIC, Disseminated Intravascular Coagulation. It's a blood infection which can be fatal. And he coded three times. Aiden was released from the neonatal at three months. And Jennifer recalls that as she took Aiden home, but left Ethan behind, there were streets, tears just streaming down her face. Every day, for the next three months, until Ethan was finally released, she and Aiden made the daily journey to his side. Imagine it, mothers, dads. Your child's life in the balance. Back at home, what did they have? Well, they had oxygen tanks and feeding tubes and heart monitors. And for three and a half years, they lived in virtual isolation because the children's immune systems were so compromised that they could not risk being out with other children where they might get germs and become infected. Moving forward, there were seizures. There were nightmares, failure to thrive, hernias, tonsil and adenoid surgery, lung problems. What a way 
to enter the world. But every day, every day, that mother's love continued. Back and forth to the hospital, staying at home with the children for nearly four years, never being able to go out and enjoy a meal at a restaurant or to do something with her husband. But love never gives up. It never gives in. It never gives out. Now, at 13 years of age, the prognosis is totally positive. Praise the Lord. Amen. You know, the Bible says that love never gives up. It never gives in. It never gives out. No matter what. That's not human. Because we humans give out. You know, I have the privilege of working with some of the fastest runners in the country. I was Kenneth Rook's first high school uh, track coach. Kenneth came up to me that first day and he says, don't call me Kenny, I'm Kenneth now. I understand that. I used to be Danny. Kenneth went on to college last year and finished the year as the fastest steeplechaser in the freshman class in the entire United States. From right here in College Place. I also coached Justin Ruzma. He is the reigning state champion in the 1600 meters. Ran 1,600 meters, which is just about the same as a mile, in 4 minutes, 15 seconds. That is so incredibly fast. And right now I'm coaching Spencer Glube, who last week was named the Cascade Conference, Cascade Collegiate Conference Runner of the Week. But these gentlemen have one thing in common. They get tired and they give out. As good as they are, as talented as they are, as hard as they work, they give out. I've seen them throw up and get sick from practice. The human body can only do so much. We give out. But God's love, it never gives out. There are two words in our theme passage that are called or translated failed. The first is ekpipto. It's the same word that the biblical writers or writers of the time, I should say, used for explaining how a flower withers up and falls off the stem. Is the flower bad? No, it's beautiful. But it runs its course. And finally, it gives out. It's the same word that they use of a ship that's adrift and runs aground. It finally runs its course, or it can simply mean to fail or to weaken. So the Bible says that love never runs out. It's a well that never runs dry. You can depend on it in the morning, in the evening, this year, next year, one lifetime to the next generation. Love never fails, never gives out. Now in the same passage, especially if you're 
uh, using the King James Version, we have another word, katargeo. And this means to become powerless or ineffective, to render useless. Think of whaling ships. We don't have any whaling ships anymore. Were, was there something wrong with them? No, we just don't do that anymore. It's run its course. It's given out. Or horse-drawn combines. If you want to see an example of a horse-drawn combine, go just a few blocks from here over to Fort Walla Walla and go through the museum. It's a fascinating display. But we don't have horse-drawn combines anymore. Or how about phone booths? We don't have phone booths anymore either. There is one over in Fort Walla Walla. I'm thankful that we have it because Superman needs a place to change. And it just makes me feel more secure at night knowing that our city is protected. No, but we don't have these things anymore. Were they bad? No, they simply run their course. We don't need them anymore. So the Bible says that love never gives out, but it says prophecy will fail. Does that mean that God messed something up? He didn't have it right? He's the giver of prophecy, isn't he? Is God a failure? Does it mean the prophet failed? The prophet didn't get the message right? Or that the prophecy itself is somehow flawed and wrong? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that it's run its course. In Daniel 7, 8, and 9, you see a prophecy about the coming of Christ, a prophecy of 490 years leading up to the time of Christ. Now, we study the prophecy, and it gives us assurance because it shows that prophecy is fulfilled. But do we in the 21st century need that prophecy to look forward to the first coming of Christ? Well, we don't. That's already happened. In other words, a prophecy has run its course. It's done its job. It's no longer needed. So it says that these things like prophecy and tongues and knowledge will run their course. They will fail. They will give out. Just like a well sometimes runs dry. And so we no longer need them in the end but love goes all the way through now i'll say another word about love love never becomes obsolete and preaching about love doesn't become obsolete either i have a friend retired pastor living in alabama named charles wheeling he does prophecy seminars all over the world and I talked with him about a trip that he made to Australia. And he said, people were coming to me and they said, uh, Charles, we're, we're glad that you're here because we need to hear some good old Adventist sermons. We're just tired of hearing about love, 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 love. It's like you can get that in a Presbyterian or a Methodist church. I'm glad you can. Because you can get it in an Adventist church too. And you will this morning. Because preaching about love never becomes obsolete. It is the beginning and the end 
Because God is forever and God is love. Charity versus love. In some of your translations, it will say charity never fails. Charity never gives out. I wasn't there in the 16th century, but I'm sure that charity meant something different. I remember when I was studying my King James Bible as a child in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that the saints will not, uh, who are living will not prevent those who are in the grave going to heaven. I thought, why would the living saints want to prevent the, one, the ones who were already dead from going to heaven? Then I found out that in the 16th century, the word prevent means what we say in the 21st century as precede. Oh, now that makes sense. The word has just changed meanings over the years. And so we weren't trying to prevent anybody from going. The Bible is simply saying that those who are living will not precede those who are in the graves. They get to go first. We'll follow them and join them on the way. Well, words change and charity has changed its meaning over the years. But it's interesting to me that in the same King James Bible, if you go to 1 John, the word agape, or agape, which is the same word translated charity in 1 Corinthians 13, in 1 John, it's uniformly translated as love. It says God is love. God is agape. So if your translation says charity, we're not talking about the bell ringer at Christmas time down at Walmart for the Salvation Army. I'm just curious. We used to do a lot of fundraising, charitable fundraising in the church too. I had my little can for humanity. I knocked on doors. We used to call it Harvest Ingathering. I'm going to give you a chance to do a little exercise here. If you ever participated in Harvest Ingathering, I want you to stand. Now, those of you who are younger and you're looking around at these people and you don't know what in the world I'm talking about, ask them after the service. Okay, you may be seated. So words change and charity doesn't mean collecting for good purposes anymore or, or it means that today, but it's better translated as love. Now, in the Bible... It says that there are three things, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, which will be superseded. They'll no longer be needed in the future. So, look at the first century and what they were actually talking about. Prophecy and tongues, two of the spiritual gifts, right? These things were so highly coveted that there were people who came to the apostles when gifts of the Spirit were being exhibited. And they said, hey, I want that. I'll give you a million dollars if you just endow me with that. If I, can, if I can be a prophet, if I can have tongues, if I can have these spiritual gifts, I'll give you a million dollars. I'll make it five million, ten million. They tried to buy the gifts of God. And then the position of knowledge was not just information, It was supposed to be a special knowledge, a knowledge that the people had that made them superior to other Christians. The Greek word is gnosis. And in a couple of centuries, 
This attitude, well, I've got some spiritual knowledge that you don't have, so I'm higher and smarter and better than you are, more spiritual, and I'll get to heaven first, and you probably won't get to go at all, actually got a name called Gnostic from the word Gnosis. We have more knowledge than anybody else. But Paul is saying here that whether it's prophecy or tongues, and in chapter 14, which will follow, We'll find out Paul claims he can speak in more tongues than anybody else. And I'm sure he did because he traveled all over the world preaching the gospel in different languages. But he said those things are going to pass away. You know, when we get to heaven, we'll be speaking one language. Language of heaven. And God has all knowledge anyway. So the Bible is telling us that these things are going to pass away. But there's something that doesn't. And that is a special gift of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. I'm using the New Living Translation today. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them. You can see it on the screen, I know. But I think there's something special about opening the Bible and reading it from its pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. The Bible tells us, Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Wow, how powerful. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. And now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, but even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. Now, moving up to verse 11. He says, When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now, don't raise your hands. Don't stand up this time. Don't confess. But how many of you go home at the end of a hard day at work and pull out your Legos or your Lincoln Logs or get your matchbox cars out and have races around the sofa. Probably not too many of us. Why? Is it bad? Is it wrong? It's the best reason to have grandchildren because then you can go out and do it again and nobody will look at you strangely. But most of us have adult toys now. We have toys that ride through the mountains on the snow or ride through the water as a boat. We have all kinds of adult toys. But we don't play with the kids' toys anymore. People would think it's strange, wouldn't they? Well, Paul is using this as an illustration. He says... We had these things before, but now we've moved on, and we move on to love, because love is never going to give out. Then in verse 12 of chapter 13, again turning to your Bibles, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. 
All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. I think that if Paul were writing this passage today, he might use an airplane trip as an illustration. So, you're flying through the clouds. You can't see where you're going, but you're trusting the pilot. He's up there. He knows how to get us there, but we're not really enjoying the view. It's just clouds. He's on track. He's got a positioning system. He's got all of that training. We're confident that we're going to get there. And we're thankful for all of this technology and these things that get the plane there safely. But there's just not much of a view. And then finally, as we're getting closer to our destination, the airplane breaks through the clouds. The sunshine starts to filter into the cockpit and the cabin. And as the clouds clear, we look out the window and we can see the beautiful landscape below that we're just about to join. That's what prophecy and knowledge and tongues do for us. They are getting us there. But in the meantime, it can be very disappointing. It can be frustrating. We can become angry. But we're going to get there. And when we get there, the love of God is so beautiful. It will just overwhelm us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. These things, these three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Oh, I love faith. What a wonderful blessing faith is. It comes from the Greek word pistis. And that word can be translated as trust or faithfulness. And God says, this is one of the things that's going through, through eternity. And what a wonderful thought. Whether you take it as God's faithfulness to us, in all circumstances, in all generations, to all people, or whether you look at it as trust. Now, when I think of trust, I think of Job. Here's a man who had everything. One of the wealthiest persons in the world. Today, that might be like the founder of Facebook or somebody else that just has incredible amounts of money. I heard that the uh, founder of Amazon, the CEO, just lost $4 billion because the stock went down. And he's still worth billions of dollars, even losing $4 billion. Well, this was Job. He was the wealthiest man in the East. And he had everything. He had houses. He had a wonderful family. Everything was going well for him. And then all of a sudden, the rug is pulled out. His children are killed. His wealth evaporates. He is personally ill. Everything that he treasured and valued is gone. And what happens? He still trusts God. He still has faith. 
When we come to that intersection in life where everything seems to be pulled away, life seems to be torn apart, we have a choice to make. So many people turn to the left and they go away from God. Job instead turns to the right and he goes toward God. Even if he kills me, I will trust him. Wow. And that kind of trust will last forever. But how about hope? The Bible tells us in Psalm 39, verse 7, And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. This afternoon, I'm delivering the homily for a funeral service. And this text was brought to my attention by the family and wanted that to be included in the sermon. And it is. But I thought, how appropriate for this morning. And I told them it would be in this morning's sermon as well. Where else can we put our hope? Our only hope is in God. Do we have any baseball fans here? You can raise your hand this time. Few, not too many. Boy, I hope I don't have to explain the game. We don't have that much time. So, Talk to John. He's a fan. Anybody else that raised their hand so you can understand the game. I'm a Houston Astros fan. I know we lost the World Series this week. I'm heartbroken. It's terrible. But the Washington Nationals, I can't help but admire them. Now, the game is nine innings long. The Washington Nationals faced elimination from the tournament five times. And every time, they were trailing in the game and most often in the final innings when it was almost over. But they never gave up hope. They kept believing. And in the final game of the World Series, with my Astros up, two to nothing, in the seventh inning of nine, when they've only gotten on base once with a hit, they started a rally. And at the end of the game, just two innings later, my Astros lost 6-2. to two. But here is a group of men that never gave up hope. They just kept going all the way to the end, and they won their victors. Good for them. Astros will get it next year. <laughs> but how about hope in the Bible? One of my favorite stories is the story of Abraham. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans. I like to call it the Gospel of Romans because Romans is such good news. Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, it says, let's see, where should I start? This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. 
And then it says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. Have you ever been there? I just lost my job. My marriage is falling apart. My landlord is evicting me. I just got a D on the math test that I studied for all night long. There's no hope for me. Have you ever been there? No hope? Abraham was there. No hope. But in spite of the fact that there was no hope, he kept hoping. I love hope. And of course, the best of the story is, and Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. But he never gave up, and God fulfilled his promise. Amen? There's hope. But the Bible tells us when we put faith and hope and love together and we pull out the straw for the one that's best, it's always love. As good as faith is and as wonderful as faith is, as wonderful as hope is, and we can't live without hope, when you put them all together, the best of the best is love. In August 24, 1905, Ellen White, one of the founders of our church, was writing to some leaders in Loma Linda, California. She wasn't very pleased with the way that they were loving one another there. And so, she wrote them about what love should be like. And in order to illustrate that, she reached back more than six decades to her teen years across the nation to Topsham, Maine. And there she told the story of a man named Stockbridge Howland. Now, Stockbridge was fairly well-to-do. He had a nice home, one of the nicer homes in the community had considerable land, which was a measure of wealth back then. And then there was another man living in that community, a poor fisherman. Just made it day by day, had a large family, uh, had to feed a lot of mouths, didn't have a really nice home. He was a believer, and they'd come to the Howlands' home to worship. But Word got back to Stockbridge that the fisherman was feeling that Stockbridge looked down on him because he had so much and the fisherman had so little. Now, if I were Stockbridge, I'd be tempted to think, well, that's just his problem, you know, if he just can't get past that. But not Mr. Howland. He went to the fisherman's humble abode, knocked on the door, when the man came to the door, he fell on his knees. And he said, Sir, how have I offended you? 
I am so sorry. Please know that I did not intend to do so. The man tried to push him out of his house, away from his house. But Stockbridge persisted. No, please, I will not get up off my knees until you tell me what I've done wrong because I wish to make it right and I want to do it today. The man was so touched, he said, well, if you won't stand up, then I only have one choice, to fall down on my knees. And when he did, he said, I'm sorry. It's not you. It's me. And they tearfully embraced. Sometime later, Mr. Howland was in his home. Other believers were gathered there. And he was thrilled to be able to tell them that he and this fisherman had reconciled. And just as he finished the story, there was a knock on the door. And the fisherman and his family stepped into the home. And everybody knew that love never gives up. It never gives in. It never gives out. Love always wins. And if you have an issue with somebody else in the congregation or somebody else in your family, why not do that? Follow Stockbridge's example. Embrace that person and reconcile in love. What a wonderful, wonderful story. She finishes that story with this exhortation that you see on the screen. God wants us to love one another as brethren. He wants us to be pitiful and courteous. He wants us to educate ourselves to believe that our brethren love us and to believe that Christ loves us. Love begets love. Do we expect to meet our brethren in heaven? If we can live with them here in peace and harmony, we could live with them there. But how could we live with them in heaven if we cannot live with them here without continual contention and strife? Those who are following a course of action that separates them from their brethren and brings in discord and dissension need a thorough conversion. Our hearts must be melted and subdued by the love of Christ. We must cherish the love that He showed us on the cross of Calvary. I want to finish with this story. It's a story of a young woman who is having a child. Like so many young women today, this was not a favorable circumstance. I don't think I need to say any more in detail. So she was poor, she was alone, she was having a baby. Her name was Gloria Cantu Martinez. There was a nurse who was attending to her case, an unethical person, who took advantage of people in poor circumstances and would sell their children for a profit. So there was a couple in that community who had tried everything to have children. Nothing worked. They tried all the drugs, all the methods that the doctors recommend, and, and nothing was happening. The nurse knew about the couple. She said, come, I want to introduce you to a baby 
They came. She held the baby. And the nurse said, well, you can take her home. Which surprised the couple because they knew there must be legal things to do and things to sign and paperwork and so forth. And she said, no, just, just take the baby home. Um, just remember uh, that you'll need to give me a check for, you know, the processing fees and the legal things and so forth. But just go ahead and, and take the baby home. And she would do this over and over again. She'd tell desperate couples, well, there's a baby here and, and the parents have died and, and this child needs a home. Well, this mother, she was not really good reputation and uh, she's got this child and, and, you know, you would be doing such a wonderful job, a wonderful work of mercy if you would just take this child and raise it. And don't forget uh, to leave the check for $20,000 on the desk. Over and over and over again. Oh, this child isn't wanted. This child's parents are dead. This child's family doesn't want to bother with it. Take the baby. Leave the check on the desk. This happened to Gloria. Years passed. The child grew up in a loving family. The family was honest with her. She knew that she was adopted. When she came of age, she wanted to find her real parents, her real mom. And so she went to the nurse. And the nurse said, just leave well enough alone. Your mother was a slut. She didn't want you. Just forget about it. Leave me alone. The girl would not be dissuaded. She kept searching and exploring and going to the library and going through documents till she finally found out who her mother is. And then she found out how, how to contact her. And then they met and tearfully embraced The mother said, I never wanted to give you up. I didn't know that the nurse was doing this. They took you away. And when I went to get you, they said that you were gone and there was nothing that I could do. I've loved you. All this time, I wondered how you were doing. I wanted to introduce you to the rest of your brothers and sisters. But I didn't know how to find you. Friends, we have been lied to. Yes, we have. We've been told God is dead. Scientists and philosophers say, God is dead. If he ever did exist, he's dead now. The pastors have shamed us to the point that we think, well, God could never love us the way that we are. We're not doing this. We're not doing that. We're not doing the other. We must be totally abhorrent to God. And the skeptics have whispered, Well, we don't think there's a God, but if there was a God, He certainly wouldn't want to be bothered with us. And we've believed that lie. 
We've believed that lie. And we've cried ourselves to sleep, wondering why God abandoned us, wondering why we're alone. And God, all this time, has been waiting for you and for me to know that it's really not that way. That these are the lies that Satan has placed in our minds. And there's nothing that you or I could ever do to pull us away from God's love. God loves us. And there is a family. There is a family of brothers and sisters in Christ who are waiting for us to find that out so that we can come home into the love of God and these brothers. Oh, we have so many cousins and nephews and brothers and sisters and people that love us and want to meet us and want to greet us and welcome us back. Is today, is today the day when you will come back to your Father's loving embrace? in the family that has longed for you for so long. It can be. I hope it is. That beautiful hymn is hymn number 76 in your hymnals. I want you to reach for your hymnal right now and open it up to page six or page 76, hymn number 76. We're going to be singing it together with our music leaders in just a few moments. But as we prepare for that moment, if there is someone here this morning who has embraced God once again, or perhaps for the first time. You've believed the lies, but now you know they're not true. You know that God loves you, and that love will never end. It's the love that will never 
let you go. There's a card. It's called a connect card in your pew. There should be pencils or perhaps you have a pen. I want you to take that card. If you're just accepting Christ for the first time or if you're coming back to Him after a long time away, and I want you to write your name on that card. And then as you leave the sanctuary this morning, you can slip it to me discreetly or you can leave it at the welcoming desk and the pastors will receive those later on. But my friend, God wants to embrace you just like Gloria wanted to embrace her long lost daughter after so many years. God wants to embrace you. Your heavenly Father wants to embrace you this morning because in His mind, He has never let you go. That love will never let you go because that love is the love that goes through the end. Hymn number 76, O love that will not let me 